So after a, a guest appearance by Filipino missionary Jerry Tanawan last week, we are ready to return to our Sunday morning series through the book of Genesis by going to Genesis chapter 6. This is now our third week in this chapter, and enough has really been packed into the first two weeks that I can't recap it all. I do want to encourage you, go back and listen to anything you may have missed. It'll get you filled in. We, we have discussed who, who were the sons of God who came in unto the daughters of men. And you don't have to agree with me, but I am of the opinion that they were believers and not fallen angels. I gave you several reasons for my opinion, and we'll see another pretty convincing argument in this chapter at some point. I thought we were getting there today, but once again, we didn't get as far as I was thinking. Uh, the, the, the problem that we have here in Genesis 6 is those who knew better were marrying ungodly daughters of men, ungodly women they were marrying. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair. And they took them wives, all of which they chose. They were not marrying women with God and righteousness in mind, but rather the Bible says they took them wives of all which they chose. They didn't want God helping them. They took what they chose. And by the way, we reap what we sow, which we're going to see this morning clearly in this chapter. We saw how all of this eventually corrupted mankind. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so God said, My spirit shall not always strive with mankind, for that he is also flesh. Now I thank God he's merciful. Amen. Amen. Our God is gracious. He's long-suffering. He's compassionate. But he will not force anybody to come to him for salvation. I do not believe in what the Calvinists call irresistible grace. That you had no choice in the matter. You just couldn't help it. No, you have a choice. And God's not going to force anybody to be saved. And so there comes a point when God will exercise His judgment and wrath. You might die today. Isn't that true? doesn't matter your age. doesn't even really matter your health. You can also... We're talking about when you step into the judgment of God. You could die and enter that judgment today. You could sear your conscience to the point where you no longer hear the message. That you become so hardened to the things of God that you just refuse to hear. And thereby, God says, I will not strive. You've chosen that if that's your case. And then there's times where God just says, it's enough. It's time for your judgment. Thankfully, our God delights in mercy. Even though He said He would not always strive with man, He said, yet His days shall be 120 years. So God, in His mercy, He would continue to strive with these here in Genesis 6 for another 120 years until the ark was ready and the flood came. But after that, it would be too late. And God is being merciful to you today as well. 
For those of you who are lost, God is striving with you. He is calling you. He's drawing you. And some of you know that to be true because it is your conscience is bearing witness to the truth that God is after you. How much longer do you have? We don't know. Only God knows. But we know that while God strives long, He will not always strive. God gives time, but that time closes. God bears a great while, but He will not always bear. How many opportunities will God give you? We know this. God is giving you the warning to turn to Him or be destroyed. And the only hope for humanity is coming to God through Christ. His finished work on the cross, His shed blood. The Bible says any that will do that, He will abundantly pardon. You say, why in the world would God do that? Because Jesus took God's punishment for us. He took the wrath of God in our place. God was satisfied. His justice was satisfied in Christ. And all you got to do is place your faith and trust in Jesus. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Amen. Amen. That was a very short recap of last week. Let's begin today. Let's read verses 1 through 17 of Genesis chapter 6. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair. And they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also flesh. Yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. The Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air. For it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted His way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, the height of it 30 cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above. The door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. As we get into today's message, let's keep in mind where we are at in this point of humanity. In chapter 4, we have the wicked line of Cain. In chapter 5, we have the godly line of Seth. 
And then this chapter opens with, and it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. So verse 1 here, it is not a continuous flow from the end of chapter 5. But what is happening here in verse 1 is we are now taking a look backwards before catching up to Noah, who is mentioned at the end of chapter 5. We are first getting the backstory as to why God is going to destroy mankind from the earth. And so we are told, and it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. Well, I got curious, when did... When did this start? What period of time was it that it came to pass and men began to multiply upon the face of the earth? Well, I believe there's two clues here that Mike can help. It was a time when corruption began to multiply. We see that very clearly. It was also a time when the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful and and married them. Remember, we saw with Lamech in Cain's line the breakdown of the home and society. I know it's been a while since we were there, but we saw the breakdown of home and society with Lamech. He glorified violence. He was a polygamist. All kind of things were going wrong with Lamech. His sons ended up inventing all kind of things. And, and we saw this breakdown <clears throat> in society. And we know from Seth's line, Enoch, the reason I have to say that is because both lines had a Lamech. Both lines had an Enoch. So we know Seth's Enoch, was preaching against ungodliness. We know that from the book of Jude. And both of these men, Enoch and Lamech, they were in the same generation. They were both the seventh from Adam. And so Enoch, listen, when the Bible says he was preaching against ungodliness, he was preaching against the ungodliness of Lamech. That that whole system of polygamy, glorifying violence and and all that was taking place during that time that Lamech was alive. And I'm sure it was much more widespread than just Lamech, but you get my point. This is the, the preaching that Jude says he was preaching against all that ungodliness that was taking place. And so this was the seventh from Adam that really everything started to spiral uh, in a downward fashion very quickly. And, and I'll remind you, only one female was, re, was recorded in either line of Cain or Seth, as being born into that line. And it was Naamah, who was the last one mentioned, born in the line of Cain. She was Lamech's daughter to one of his wives. Remember that Naamah means pleasantness, pleasantness, and it has the idea of her being beautiful. And in our text, the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, they were pretty. And so it makes perfect sense to me what we see happening here is we have this mention in chapter 4 of this woman who was born into a line of wickedness, but she had outward beauty. And now we're seeing that these who were in the godly line are marrying into this ungodly line and it's corrupting society. Remember, we talked about all that. So from a study bug perspective, it could be around the 7th or 8th generation that is coming to pass here in verse 1. Adam being the first, 7th or 8th generation. Now, I realize we're not told what generation verse 1 begins, and your guess is as good as mine. The reason I found all of this intriguing and worthwhile is because Noah is the tenth from Adam. Therefore, if there's any merit to my line of thinking, it only took, it only took 
three to four generations for society to become completely, uh, the, the degradation of society just to go completely haywire. And, and, and the earth become filled with violence and corrupt. And, and it only took this short period of time once the sons of God saw the daughters of men. How quickly can things go from not too bad to horrible? I arrive at three to four generations because Seth's Enoch was contemporary with Cain's Lamech. And so if you count that generation that Enoch was preaching against, then it would be Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah. Four generations. Since Naamah was the daughter of Cain's Lamech, that would be three generations, three to four generations. That's my thinking. And, and my point is, this could have been a very rapid demise of society in, in just three to four generations. Now, no doubt the seeds of this decline would have been planted beforehand. Right? It, it just didn't. You know, happened. There were things that were taking place behind the scenes in previous generations that was leading to this corruption. But once this wave of wickedness, once it started rolling, once it started moving, it seemed impossible to stop. And as a result, God says, I gotta, I gotta destroy it. I've got to put an end to this. He says, I'm gonna destroy all flesh wherein is the breath of life. Notice again how bad it was. Verse 5, every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 12, God looked upon the earth and behold it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. Verse 13, God says to Noah, for the earth is filled with violence. Therefore God is about to bring swift judgment upon this earth. He will pour out his wrath in the form of a global Flood, He says in verse 17, Behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. He said in verse 7, I'll destroy man. Verse 13, the end of all flesh has come before me. I'll destroy them with the earth. Now we know wickedness existed before this point. We know that because when Adam and Eve sinned, Sin entered the world, death through sin. Their kids, they had a murderer. Cain was a liar and a murderer, and he rejected God. And so we know that there was wickedness in the world before this point. As we studied Cain's lineage, we took note of how they continued to reject God in his line. But now in our text, things are different. It was no longer Cain and his lineage off over somewhere in the east in the land of Nod. Remember, that's where he went. Now all of a sudden we see in our text that that separation that was taking place between the children of God and the children of this world was disappearing. And the two were coming together in marriage, irregardless of God's standards. And, and they were just marrying whoever they wanted. And, and now this line is blurred. Now this line is blending together. There's no longer a distinct division between God's people and the world's people. Now, does any of that sound familiar to you today? What happened in three to four generations 
leading up to God's global destruction in Genesis 6, it is the very thing that is happening in America today. There's been many impurities throughout our short history as a nation. And I'm willing to discuss those with you at another time. But if I had to pick one decade in this country which radically changed the spiritual direction of America, then it would have to be the 1960s. I realize many of you lived through the 60s. You know firsthand. You experienced it. But we have a generation who don't know these things. And they're not going to be taught in school the dangers of what took place in the 60s. So I want our senior saints to bear with me as I bring this out because I think it's important to know or at least be introduced to. If you want to understand the political climate of the 60s, you have to understand the spiritual climate of the 60s. I, I, I won't get into all that. It would take too much time. I really wanted to because if you've been here long enough, you know I kind of dig history and I like that kind of thing. But I had to fight it, okay? I did it for your sake. Amen. You're welcome. All right. For now, I'll just say there was a, a huge influx of Eastern religious thought. Marxism, feminism, neo-paganism, esoteric thought were all present. It was the age of Aquarius. And it's not just some goofy, stupid song. It is a wicked song for those who know what I'm talking about. And, and, and it was viewed as, as the age of Aquarius, which led into the New Age movement of the 70s, which ultimately led to the occult movement of the 80s. Obviously, the 60s movement didn't just happen overnight. And, and I could give you my opinions on what generated what took place in the 60s. But again, I won't go there today for sake of time. I'll just get right to the point instead. The landmark case in my mind politically and spiritually happened on June the 25th, 1962. That is when America decided she no longer wanted prayers being offered up to God in our public schools. Do you understand before that time, it was, it, that's what took place? And in some pockets of America, it still took place. I remember we still opened in prayer in the county I grew up in up until about 1992. The principal would get over to the loudspeaker. He'd lead us all in prayer. The principal just happened to go to my church, so that was an added bonus. The case was brought before the United States Supreme Court when 10 parents from the New Hyde Park, New York School District filed a lawsuit against public school prayer. The, the prayer in question reads this way. Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon Thee, and we beg Thy blessings upon us, our parents, our teachers, and our country. And six out of seven justices ruled to remove prayer from our public schools. In the following year, in 1963, the Supreme Court ruled eight to one that devotional Bible reading or other government-sponsored religious activities in public schools were now considered unconstitutional. Did they even read the Constitution? Anyway. In 1973, the Supreme Court voted seven to two to legalize abortion. And in 1980, they voted five to four to remove the Ten Commandments from the public schools. And with God having been willf, willingly removed from our public and government institutions in the 60s, our society quickly began to spiral out of control. And, and I'm not exaggerating. I know it's hard for some who can't even picture a day of no internet, for example. 
it's hard to imagine just how quick things have spiraled out of control for our young people to, under, to grasp that. Among teenagers, fornication, STDs, unwed pregnancies, rape, illegal drug use, aggravated assaults, and murders all skyrocketed for about the next 30 years while SAT scores plummeted. Among adults, divorce rates, unmarried couples living together, single mother households, and child abuse all increased sharply. That's not my opinion. That's a proven fact. And today, we have now plunged to a depth of corruption that even just 25 years ago we would have thought was unthinkable. Same-sex marriage has been legalized. Transgenderism is now here to stay. And in some respects, it is now in vogue. Even so-called churches are condoning same-sex marriage and transgenderism as scriptural. Listen, I'm not hateful. I want to win them to Christ. Somebody say amen right there. But if we don't stand up for what's right, who's going to? Now, for sure, these sins have always been present, but for those of you who are old enough, you would have to agree sin is now more widespread. Sin is far more accepted. It's out of the closet. Sin is more accessible than ever before. You no longer have to sneak around to the bad part of town at night. It is is at a fingertip away. And worst of all, the ages of those committing these gross sins have gotten younger. We are literally seeing good called evil and evil called good. Drag queen shows for children and drag queen story hour for children are being called good. Our public libraries are hosting drag queen story hours, but these same libraries are denying Kirk Cameron from reading his book, As You Grow, which celebrates family faith and biblical wisdom. I'm not necessarily advocating the guy. I'm just telling you the news stories. The Rochambeau Public Library in Providence, Rhode Island, responded to Cameron's request, quote, We are very queer-friendly, a very queer-friendly library. Our messaging does not align. Let me say that again. According to Cameron, the Alameda County Public Library, which I assume is the same Alameda County in California, said they didn't want books teaching kids biblical values. It's our public libraries. They're still good libraries. Don't, Don't take what I'm saying out of context. Meanwhile, that same library was hosting a gender name change clinic. So much for diversity. We don't want your diversity. This is just one very small example. I I could spend all day giving you examples of how our society is just, we're on an avalanche. Maybe you saw the Twix candy bar ad which features a cross-dressing boy and a witch babysitter. Check it out. It's about two minutes long. And and now we have children today in churches who mock their parents and grandparents for not understanding the LGBTQ plus movement. 
And I tell you, be careful that you don't mistake their holiness for some kind of ignorance. Somebody say amen. Amen. Don't call their good evil and your evil good. Listen to me, righteousness is never to be defined by the culture. So we're left to wonder in the day in which we live, how far down will we plunge? Only God knows, but I can tell you that there are those in our nation right now who are seeking to de-stigmatize pedophilia. A transgender professor at Old Dominion University in Virginia named Alan Walker wants to rebrand the term pedophiles as, quote, minor attracted persons. He or, or she, I don't know. I know he or she goes by they, them. He has written a book entitled A Long Dark Shadow, Minor Attracted People and Their Pursuit of Dignity. And unfortunately, Walker isn't alone. Professor Joseph Faisal at Yale is so radical that I wouldn't even dare to discuss his opinions in this setting. It would literally turn your stomach, I would hope. It is sick. And then there are organizations such as Before You Act, the Prostasia Foundation, and Vice News, which are all seeking to destigmatize pedophilia. Man, I wept as I was studying this. This is what our children are being exposed to. And it's being called good. It is sickening what is becoming accepted in our society as normal, all in the name of progress. Here's my connection to our text. It may have only taken three to four generations for the earth to become so corrupted that God was ready to bring a swift outpouring of His wrath in a flood here in Genesis. It has only taken America three to four generations to go completely off the rails. On a national political level, America officially said no to God in the 60s. So it's been 60 years. There are exceptions, but generally speaking, most will call a Bible generation 40 years. Since those bringing these lawsuits had school-aged children, we would consider them the first generation. I'll have to make some assumptions, which I know are dangerous, but stay with me. Let's assume their children were 10 in 1962. And by the time those children reached 40, it would have been 1992. You following me so far? Let's suppose they had 10-year-olds in 1982, then 40 years later would be 2022. This means if you're about my age, we're the third generation raising the fourth. These are loose numbers, but hopefully you can understand where I'm coming from and how it makes sense to me. We are in the third generation of deepening corruption. And we're heading into the fourth. It's like we have one more generation to go and either it's judgment time or it's revival time. God gave these in Genesis 6 120 years until He poured out His wrath, which given their longer lifespans may have been the equivalent of one generation. I didn't do the math. But one can kind of sense this is where we're at in America. Just as, just as in Genesis 6, it's like this wave of wickedness has now, it's on the move. And it feels like there's no stopping it. It's like there's these little pockets of salt throughout America, these solid local churches that are still in existence, but it's almost like there's just a wave of so much wickedness that what are we going to do? 
We know God is able. But you understand what I'm saying. This wave of wickedness, it seems impossible to stop, and it could be. The only thing that's going to stop it at this point is God's coming judgment once again. Certainly against America, if not the entire world. And, and I don't want to be guilty of Americanizing eschatology. I think we've done that for a generation or two, and it's backfired. So I, I don't want to be guilty of that and say, well, what's happening in our nation, God must be at the doorstep. Because it's been bad in other places. But I think there's something to be said that America is the leader of the free world. That is a recognized fact by other nations, and other nations have stated, as America goes, we go. I will say, do not underestimate this idea of the fourth generation. God told Abram in Genesis 15 that his seed would be a stranger in a land that is not theirs. He was referring to the land of Egypt with the children of Israel. And then God said this in Genesis 15, 16, but in the fourth generation, they shall come hither again. Why? For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Interesting. It's almost as if both of them had to take four generations until it was time. They had to fill up their iniquity, which seems to insinuate four generations worth until they were ripe for judgment. In Exodus 20 and verse 5, For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And you'll find the same thought in Exodus 34, 7, Numbers 14, 18, and Deuteronomy 5, 9. And it goes for both good and evil. You ever get the sense that we are filling up our iniquity as a nation? Preacher, are you insinuating that God's judgment is on the way? No, I'm not insinuating. I'm declaring to you God's judgment is on the way. And I don't know how many preachers are up in the pulpit sounding the alarm, but America better start listening. And no, I'm not trying to date set the Lord's return. But we are taught we can understand the seasons. It may very well be the end of days is only a generation away, if not sooner. You say, come on, preacher, now you're taking way too much liberty with the Scriptures. Well, let's hear what Jesus had to say. Matthew 24, verses 35 through 39. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Listen, Jesus told us, it's, it's going, I'm, I'm returning when it is like the days of Noah. What about what Peter had to say? Second Peter 3, verses 3 through 8. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. 
But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And so the sense that Peter is saying is people are going to begin to say, where is God's judgment? You say we are in the last days. You're claiming we're living in sin. I don't see God and I'm not experiencing His judgment. People are mistaking God's long-suffering for God's lack of existence. But the day will come when they will be sorely mistaken. Ecclesiastes 8.11 Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. And just an interesting side note, Peter added there a thousand years is as one day with God. I don't want to make too much of this, but with that ratio in mind, we're living in the sixth day. Day seven is a day of rest, which would seem to correlate with the millennial reign of Christ. I don't know how much stock to put into that. But as the day of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. What this ultimately means is that people were just going to be living their life, the world, Christendom for that matter, quote-unquote. People would just be living their life, going about their life like everything's normal. Everyone would be eating and drinking and making merry and, and, and just enjoying life completely unconcerned, completely out of touch with the reality of God's coming judgment. Just like some of you are right now. Oh, hum. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing how hard a heart, how hard a heart can get. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Verse 1 says, And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. Seems to suggest it was a time when the world's population was exploding. Many believe, and I haven't been able to study this for myself yet, and nor would I truly study it. I would just see if their math makes sense. But many people believe the population in Noah's day was 7 to 8 billion people. And here's some food for thought. In 1962, the world's population was estimated at 3.1 billion. And as of last month, 60 years later, the world's population is now estimated at 8 billion people. I'd say this is a time when men begin to multiply upon the face of the earth. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Believers weren't mindful here of being separated from the world. Corruption abounded, evil was in hearts and on the minds continually, and that sure sounds similar to our day. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Can't you hear the people mocking Noah? I mean, he's building an ark. This is going to be God's refuge. He isn't launching this thing into the ocean. He's building it there. It's bizarre. And we'll get into all this more later, um, another message, but you can sense that they're mocking this preacher of righteousness. What are you doing building this thing in the middle of the earth preaching to us about righteousness? Dude, you have lost it. Right? How long do you think it took until they laughed him to scorn? How long did it take until they just dismissed him as some conservative, right-wing, nut-job fundamentalist? 
But how long did it take once the waters burst forth until they started to pound upon that ark wanting to get in, but it was too late. We, we are in or we must be very close to living in the days of Noah. God's preachers and His servants are being blasted as irrelevant and intolerant. We are being dismissed as wacky fundamentalists. Our preaching of Christ's righteousness as the only answer is openly mocked. But how long will it take until the world realizes they should not have mocked God, His message, or His messengers? Revelation 1.7, Behold, He cometh with clouds, Every eye shall see Him, and they also which pierced Him. And all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of Him. Even so, amen. Revelation 6, verses 12 through 17. And I beheld when He opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood The stars of heaven fell into the earth, even as a fig casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men, the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman, every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of His wrath has come. Who shall be able to stand? When Christ is revealed from heaven, there will be an instantaneous awareness. Uh Uh-oh. It will be understood that His wrath is about to be poured out. And just as in the days of Noah, people in that hour will have wished they were in the ark of Christ. He is the only protection from God's wrath. Genesis 6.13, And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 14. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. The elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? looking for and hasting unto the coming day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of Him in peace without spot and blameless. I, don't, I didn't want to get stuck on this thought, believe me. But I have, I have to say, judgment is on the way. 
this country that I love, this country that I spent 21 years serving, judgment is on the way. This is not the country that I grew up in even, and I'm not an old man. We are on a fast track. Are you ready? If you're outside the ark of Christ, you better get in before God closes the door. Jesus is your only hope. For those of us in Christ, we have to see this judgment is on the way. And because of that, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? And this dovetails perfect with Pastor DeGarmo's Sunday school lesson. What manner of person ought you to be? You ought to be living in such a way that others can tell. They ought to know your message is matching your life. That's what the conversation is. It's your life. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Christ being lived in us and through us is the only hope for a sin-sick world. Jesus bled and died to purchase the church. And He said to the church, go into all the world and preach the gospel. What manner of persons ought you to be? You ought to be holy and godly. Our preaching of Christ is the only hope to this world. And finally, I'll say this this morning. Thank you for your patience. Do not get attached to the things of this world. I had no idea when I studied this, but that's our message pretty much tonight. Do not get attached to this world. We look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Nothing that defiles shall enter in there. Is there anyone here not ready for Judgment Day? It's coming soon. And even if it's not, and I'm way off base, 